0: So imagine, imagine just even their perspective. It's early Sunday morning, right? Very early in the morning, their eyes are still red from a mixture of crying and fatigue since they watched Jesus violently seized, defamed and executed on the cross less than 72 hours beforehand, right? And they were some of the only ones there who stuck with him. You have to imagine that such brutal images flashed before them whenever they closed their eyes on that Saturday. Right? He's gone. Friday happened. Saturday happened. Now it's very early on Sunday morning. And these women who, who, unlike so many of his other disciples, stuck with Jesus until the end, they saw his dead body taken down. They saw him placed in a borrowed grave. Right? They saw the heavy stone rolled in front of it. And now they're heading back to the scene because they want to show him the same dignity that they would show for any other person who died that was Jewish, right? Following the Jewish custom, they bring burial spices that they had prepared. Right? They, they spent time preparing this mix of spices. They walked to the tomb to tend To their dear Lord. And there's a slide up there uh, that Patrick had put up of the garden tomb. Uh, This is where some people believe that Jesus was laid. It's not certain that that's where he was, but this is a good example of the type of tomb that they would have walked to. Right? They walked to the tomb. Then they decide to go in the tomb. And Jesus isn't there, it's empty. In John's account, the first conclusion that they jump to is that somebody has robbed Jesus' grave. Somebody has stolen his body. And this was a legitimate concern, especially uh, for the Roman guards that were charged with manning the tomb. That's why they were there. If you were going to start a conspiracy, you might want to rid the tomb of the body to prove a point, right? But here's the thing. There's no getting past what would have been at least 16 Roman soldiers that were guarding Jesus' tomb, right? Jesus' followers were not military men. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors, right? That's not happening. There's no way they're overcoming a Roman guard. Now the women, they're in the empty tomb and they're met by these two men in dazzling clothes and they tell them, what are you looking for? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It's necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. It's necessary that he be crucified and rise on the third day. And it says, And they remembered his words. So many of Jesus' words made sense after the resurrection. Right? There's even times when, and we'll talk about this passage next week, but when people are eating with Jesus and all of a sudden everything just clicks. Right? They go on to tell the 11 disciples, these women, they go running, they tell the 11 disciples and the rest of the disciples who were with them, and they're met with disbelief. Peter, however, it says, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. The tomb was empty.
1: In the words of
0: author Philip Yancey, Easter means Jesus is on the loose out there somewhere. Jesus is on the loose. The tomb is empty. And then follows multiple accounts of interactions with the risen Christ. Right? He really did rise. And he proves his physical resurrection by eating meals with his friends, something that he did a lot before his death. He chose these meals as opportunities to reveal himself to his disciples. And there's this one particular meal that I want to talk about today, and it requires that we go back to Luke 22. It requires that we go back from this Sunday to the Thursday evening that came before it's really one of the last normal moments that the disciples had with Jesus before his arrest. So just like a movie that flashes back to an earlier time, I want us to flash back to a large upper room that Patrick will put on the slide there in Jerusalem. All right, this is called the Cynical. and And some folks believe that this is the upper room where this meal took place. It's in Jerusalem. Now, do we know that for sure? No, we don't, just like we don't know about the grave. But could it have been? Absolutely, it could have been. Right, this this large room that Jesus sent his disciples ahead to go reserve. Then the day of unleavened bread came, it says in Luke 22, 7, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room? Where can I eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So Jesus had made these arrangements ahead of time to get this room and sent Peter and John to get this room and, and it was just like he said, they were met by the guy with the water jug, right? They, they got into this room and they go and they make preparations for the Passover meal, And a lot of folks think, yeah, that that was the same room where the disciples were even on the day of Pentecost. Because they're uh, in the upper room on the day when the church is born. The Spirit descends upon the disciples of Jesus. And we see a few times in the Bible where those with rich resources would use those resources for the sake of the gospel. And so this homeowner houses Jesus and his disciples for the Last Supper. And I know this meal is before the resurrection, but I want to spend time talking about it today because it gives meaning to the resurrection. And the resurrection gives meaning to it. It's one of those many moments when Jesus shares a monumental truth that doesn't fully make sense at the time, but the resurrection makes sense of it. The resurrection makes sense of a lot of stuff in the Bible, right? The resurrection reveals the meaning of the past and it instills hope for the future, And this meal, Jesus' Last Supper, it became what we now call the Lord's Supper, what we now call Communion or the Eucharist. And at Seven Mile Road, we take that meal every Sunday. But it makes no sense without the resurrection. So what better time to explore the significance of this meal than on Resurrection Sunday? So we're going to look at this meal Jesus instituted that we share, which is really a meal that's between two other meals. And so I want to talk about those meals too. See, if we look closely at this passage, it isn't just about one meal. There are three meals that make this moment significant, and I want to explore that. The three meals are the Passover, the Lord's Supper, and what I'll call the Kingdom Banquet. Let's look at the first meal that's mentioned because without understanding the Passover, we're missing a big part of what's happening here at this dinner that Jesus is having with his disciples. Right? They are, after all, having a Passover meal together. Luke twenty-two fourteen. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he, Jesus, said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, this might not surprise anybody here, but Jesus is Jewish, right? Fully God, fully man. And as a man, he's descended from Abraham, from a long line of Hebrews. He grew up in ancient Israel, and if he was 33 when he died, then depending on his birthday, this is either his 32nd or 33rd Passover, right? And the Passover, for Israelites, it wasn't a small thing. It wasn't a voluntary holiday. You know, you have holidays that are like Labor Day, right? And then you have holidays that are like Christmas, Easter, or even Independence Day, where something happens on these days, right? But this wasn't a voluntary holiday. This was a holiday of holidays for them. First of all, it was a holiday that was instituted by God himself. In Exodus 12, after the Israelites have been delivered by God out of a 400-year period of slavery in Egypt, God institutes this holiday for them. He wants them to remember, to remember that he did it, but he also wants them to remember how he did it. See, Israel started just as a family. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, had 12 sons, and through a series of evil plots and foiled plans and God's faithfulness that I don't have time to cover in their entirety today, this family ended up in Egypt because of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, who was sold into slavery by his siblings. Now, Joseph has this meteoric rise to the top, and he ends up saving Egypt from the devastation of a famine that was sweeping the Middle East at that time. And because of that, Joseph was honored and his family was welcomed into Egypt and they stayed there. They stayed there and they grew over time. They grew and they prospered to the point where they were now a proper minority on the trajectory of becoming a majority in Egypt. And as the generations went on, the kings succeeded one another and there was finally a king, a pharaoh, who was threatened by their success He didn't recognize uh, the contribution of Joseph. And he ordered that these folks be put into forced labor. And the worse they treated them, the more they multiplied until finally he puts this order to Hebrew midwives that they need to throw the male babies, the male Hebrew babies into the Nile, right? The daughters can stay, but you need to kill the males. And Moses is one of those babies, but he doesn't die. His mom and his sister, uh, they save him. And he ends up growing up in Pharaoh's household. And all the while, the Hebrews, the people of God, are crying out to God. They're crying out to God to save them. And long story short, God hears their cries. And he chooses Moses to be his messenger to Pharaoh, ordering that he free Israel. And now Pharaoh refuses and it brings upon Egypt numerous plagues, one after another. It gets worse and worse, and Pharaoh digs his heels in deeper and deeper until God's tenth and final plague, a reversal of Pharaoh's own order. Right? God tells Pharaoh, if he does not set his people free, if he does not stop abusing and oppressing and, and killing even his people, every firstborn son in Egypt will die, human, animal. All of them. Pharaoh knows that God does what he says he's going to do because each plague has shown him that. But he refuses to set Israel free. And so God does it. But before he does it, he gives instructions to the Israelites. See, God is going to send his angel of justice to carry out justice. right? And it's limited to this specific time and place on the map. But God is fair in his justice. And if he sweeps through there with justice, then that justice will be carried out on the sons of Israel too. Right? Israel is not exempt from sin or exempt from God's judgment by the nature of being Israel. And so he tells Moses that the only way they can survive this night is if their families take a lamb, kill it, and eat it, and put its blood on their door. They won't be saved by being Jewish. They won't be saved by being descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will be saved through faith in the provision of the substitute. Under the blood of the lamb. And this is why the lamb is the main course of the Passover meal. And the story goes that they were preserved. The angel passed over them. And Pharaoh relented and set them free. And so this meal, this holiday, it celebrates the preservation of the people of Israel. It celebrates the emancipation of the people of Israel. It celebrates the beginning of their journey to their very own promised land. This this holiday commemorates God's faithfulness to those who put their faith in him. So can you feel the weight that's brought to the Last Supper when this is the meaning of the meal. So they would have this feast every year in the spring for centuries, and it's still celebrated to this day by the Jewish people. And we see it commemorated here in the upper room in Luke's gospel. Jesus earnestly desired to share this meal with his disciples. And at this meal, they'd eat unleavened bread because During the first Passover, the meal was prepared in such haste that there was no time to let their bread rise. They'd have bitter herbs at this meal that were meant to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. And they'd eat a lamb to remind them of the lamb that was slain for their deliverance. And then they had four cups, and we'll talk about those soon. Um, But the meal would start with a question. Usually, the youngest kid in the room would ask, why is tonight different than all other nights? And the presider over the meal, usually the father would give an explanation that would come from Deuteronomy 16, where this meal is explained in detail. And he'd say something like this, our forefathers, our ancestors, they were slaves, but God looked upon their affliction. And there were four cups, Right? And, and the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. Right? I will bring you out, God's promise. To bring out implies a change of status. Right, They were objectively slaves, and then they were emancipated. Right, They went from being captives to freed men and women. Free to worship the Lord in a way that they couldn't do when they were slaves. After this course, the main meal, the lamb would be served, and the second cup would be poured. And at this point, the meal is explained, right? The story of the Exodus is told, and the people at the table, they enter into the story, and then the family would sing the first part of what's called the Hallel Psalms, 113 through 114, and they'd drink the second cup. And the second cup is called the cup of deliverance. God's promise, I will deliver you. God's people are unable to bring about their own release, right? We're helpless to deliver ourselves and we have to trust in him alone for salvation. The very idea of rescue implies that we can't save ourselves. Then the presider would take the unlimited bread and give thanks and say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Then the main meal, the lamb and the unleavened bread, would be eaten. And after the meal, the third cup would be poured with a prayer of thanksgiving, and then it would be consumed. And that cup, the third cup, is called the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. Right? The work of salvation requires both divine power and payment. Salvation comes at a costly Price and the word redemption signifies to us that a price was paid. Right when something's redeemed, it's been paid for. And then they'd sing the second set of what they call the Hillel song. Psalm, Psalm one fifteen through one eighteen. This isn't a lesson that you need to write down. I'm just trying to give you a picture of what was what happens at these meals. Right. Finally, the Passover concludes with the fourth cup. The cup of expectation. I will take you out, and I will be your God. Right, the redemption that's achieved—it's not complete yet. Right, even though Israel's redemption was secured, they didn't immediately transfer over into uh, the promised land. Right, let alone the realm of eternal peace. So the fourth cup is is signifying that need. Right, Israel is redeemed from Egypt and given. Freedom, but they have to now make their own way through the wilderness until they reach the promised land. Redemption is guaranteed, but the journey is still necessary. So there's the expectation that the Lord will fully and completely finish the work of transformation so that we are God's holy people. And now, stick with me. Come back with me to that upper room. We'll put that slide on there. Just to transfer you back there, back into the room with Jesus. So Jesus is presiding over this meal, right? His last Passover, his last supper. And imagine this. They begin the meal with the first cup, that first course of bitter herbs, right? And the main meal is served along with the second cup. And the story of the Exodus is told. They drink the second cup and they sing Psalms 113 and 114. Then Jesus, he takes the bread and he blesses it. And instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body broken for you. What makes tonight different from all other nights? Jesus is changing up the Passover meal. He is going to suffer to bring us to freedom. And not just from political oppression, which they were experiencing under the Romans, not simply from physical harm, which they were guaranteed to experience by following Jesus in the future, right? but freedom from sin and freedom from death. And it's here where they would eat the meal, but notice that there's an element of the meal that's missing There's no mention of the lamb. Why is that? In all three gospel accounts of this meal, there's no mention of the lamb. Then comes the third cup, the cup of redemption. And what does he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you a new covenant, a new relationship, Jesus' blood is going to achieve true and final freedom, true and final forgiveness of sin, not just a temporary stay, not a forbearance that's bought with the blood of a lamb, but an eternal peace bought with the blood of the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, the lambs pointed to me all alone. Right? The lamb isn't missing from the table. He's presiding over the meal. Amen. And there's one more thing that's missing from this account of the meal. Jesus pours out the third cup, and then that's just the end. Right? There's supposed to be a fourth cup, the cup of expectation. Jesus pauses the meal. He goes into talking about how he's going to be betrayed and we never get back to that fourth cup. He says, I won't drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He won't eat this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And in the meantime, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And the meal becomes an ordinance, a sacrament for the church. A meal that we take together in communion, looking back on the Lord's death until he comes. Until the day when he will eat and drink this meal again with all his disciples when the kingdom of God comes. Jesus won't finish the meal because people are missing from the table. In Luke 22, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to prepare the room for celebration. In John 14, he tells them before he dies, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And none of this would matter or make sense if he didn't die. And it certainly wouldn't make sense if he wasn't raised on the third day. The cross makes sense of the Passover, and it's the fulfillment of Jesus' words at the Last Supper. And the resurrection is why we continue to eat this meal because Jesus was not simply broken and poured out for us the end, right? At his meal, he talks about a new covenant, a new relationship with God based on his sacrifice. But if he stayed dead, if Jesus stayed dead, how could we keep up that relationship? We don't have relationships with dead people. We have relationships with the living Death usually dissolves a covenant, right? For for example, in marriage, till death do us part. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's the seal on this covenant he's talking about. That's what makes Jesus trustworthy. Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? Our sacrifice judged in our place. Right? We all want judgment. We often shudder at the idea of a God who judges, right? At first glance, we think we don't want that. But what do you think we're longing for when we're longing for peace on earth? Right? When we're longing uh, to not see the atrocities that we see in the media over and over again, the things that are just too much to bear. Children killed, war crimes, oppression, utter wickedness in some of its most pure and magnified and unadulterated forms. Right? When it seems like no one can fix the problem, when no one can bring accountability to the abusers, the ones who are doing evil, Right, our hearts cry out to God. We might not be able to articulate it that way, but we want something or someone bigger than ourselves to right the wrongs. It's why we love superheroes. I mean, people even say they don't believe in God because he allows evil in the world. Doesn't that show you how much we crave a just God? A God who will judge and judge fairly in this corrupt world. So our hearts cry out, right? When Israel couldn't bear their slavery in Egypt anymore, their hearts cried out to God. They cried out with their voices to God and God heard their cries. We want God to do something, right? This isn't right. We'd like to see judgment upon the heinous acts of even just recent news, rape and murder and destruction in Ukraine, right? God, do something. This is too much to bear. Do something about the wickedness. Of the world and at the same time we say God but when you do it pass over me pass over my loved ones the problem is well maybe we're not war criminals or dictators or the worst of the worst there's just no category for light or medium-level sinfulness There are only two categories, those who have sinned against God and those who have not. And when we survey our lives, whether we believe we've tried our best or not, we know that we're in the first category. Maybe you don't commit the pet sins that many people in church often call out, but we can all agree, can't we, that we have failed at one time or another to love our neighbors as ourselves, have we not? Can we all agree that there are things in our lives, moments that we replay that might even make us shudder? God, bring judgment. Bring peace. Set the world right. But pass over me. God's judgment is just. But here's the amazing thing just like in Exodus, he has made a way. There's only one human in the category of sinless, and his name is Jesus. It says, yet he himself, Isaiah says this, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed Because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity, for the sin of us all. These words are written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. Isaiah 53 Jesus is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb, not just for households in Israel, but for anyone who shelters in him, anyone who trusts in him. God himself bore the judgment that we cry out for so that we could be saved. That is the mercy of God. That is the grace of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And Jesus left us with a meal to remember all of this. So many words can be summed up in a simple meal that we share as a church, right? A meal is more than words, right? It engages all the senses. We can't see God, but we can see this, right? We can drink and eat the promises of God week after week, remembering all that he's done for us. And while we eat and drink, he waits. He abstains. Right? He said in Luke 22 that he's not participating in this eating and drinking until the kingdom comes. And in that way, he gives us this meal as a foretaste of what's to come. But a moment of peace and connection with God and one another in a world that so often pulls us away from both. Now there's a third meal, right? one that hasn't happened yet. One that, one that we wait for too. Right, that kingdom banquet. See, we're living between two meals, right? The Last Supper and the kingdom banquet. And remember, Jesus paused the meal. And if Luke 22 says that he fervently desired to eat the Passover meal with his disciples, how much more does he desire to eat at the kingdom banquet with you, with me? Right? Have you ever just longed to be at the table with the people you love? Right, I think about at like peak COVID. We all felt that. Just to have the whole family at the table or, or our friends, the people that we love, for just a moment of peace, right? just a moment of normalcy. Now, I've scoured the Bible to find all the details I can about this kingdom meal, and we're honestly not told much about it specifically. But Isaiah 25 talks about a day when the Lord will prepare a feast for his people with choice meat, Fine wine. This meal is a reunion. right? In verse 7, pointing to our resurrected king, he says, He will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove is people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. The resurrected Jesus will swallow up the burial shroud. Death will be swallowed up by life, and God himself will wipe away the tears from every face. The kingdom banquet is like coming home. John paints a picture of the kingdom similarly in the book of Revelation. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So why are we waiting for this, right? Why didn't Jesus just usher all this in when he was raised? His disciples were ready for him to do it. Well, for one, think about this. Where would you and I be? Right? If he just did it right then, where would you and I be? Jesus has a plan. The apostle Peter speaks to this in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God wants more people at his table. Jesus said he won't eat this meal again until the kingdom comes. And here's the thing, right? A kingdom, it's made up of three parts, right? You have a ruler, the king, right? You have a realm, the place. And you have the residents, right? Ruler, realm, and residence, right? The ruler has come. That's Jesus. The realm, this peaceful, protected, deathless, new heaven, new earth, that's not here yet, right? We can all see that plainly. And the residents, believers in Jesus, that population is growing by the day. And this is what's causing the delay. God has more people that he fervently desires to share this meal with. And he is patient. And if you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, then part of your job is to tell the world about the risen Christ. God has given you a part in inviting guests to his table, like the women hurrying from the tomb with good news bursting from their mouths, right? Like the servants that we talked about a few weeks ago that are inviting any and all who will come to this banquet, right? Let your life show the world that the tomb is empty. This is a joyful thing. No one can take it away. So a good question to ask is, does my life reflect the joy of the resurrection? Because Jesus is alive, right? Easter means Jesus is on the loose out there somewhere. And if you're here or or tuning in because you're exploring the hope of Christianity, know this, Jesus has a place for you at the table. God has shown that he keeps his promise, that's been celebrated through millennia of Passover meals. He made a way. For almost two millennia, the church has celebrated that with communion with the Lord's Supper. And we look forward to the day when we'll share that meal with Jesus himself. Revelation 21.4 points to a day where it says God's dwelling will be with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. We are living between two meals. Let's look back with assurance that Jesus has risen. God keeps his promises, Right? And let's look forward with hope and expectation that he has gone to prepare a place for us.